Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned, discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit Learner.co. That's Learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the Learner.co show. Today we have Mike Smirklow. He's an entrepreneur, investor, and part-time author. I'm excited to have Mike on the show today. I, I've talked to him in the past. I think uh, his book is actually really, there's a lot of really good learnings um, in, in it. It's called uh, Mr. Monkey and Me. And uh, he's got a really, or there, there's a lot of really good kind of investment and advice in it. Um, so I'm interested to get that. I always find it interesting when investors write a book, especially when it's for entrepreneurs. So John and Greg, what do you guys think? Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's gonna be really interesting. Um, I was, uh, I was looking at the book and it, I, I, I I'm going to put it actually on my, on my wish list, the books to read. And, um, I was also looking at their, um, their, uh, their, their investment site and they have, themes that uh that they invest around it i think it's six of them and i'd be interested to hear about that as well of like how they're looking for companies to fit into these see these themes that they uh that they've created i always love it when when uh you know people have been on both sides of the table essentially with uh with investment and with entrepreneurs and so that it's really helpful to see things from different perspectives. And so uh, there's lots to, lots to share and learn, uh, lots to learn from, from what he has to share, I'm sure. And as always, I always love the sort of weird stuff that comes out that you don't necessarily know about. So I'm, I'm curious what, uh, what things will come that we don't expect that, that maybe come from outside of, you know, taking an MBA or, or starting a business. I'm also interested in the book in in uh, in how he came up with the book cover. If you have a chance, take a look at the book cover for the book. Cool. Well, on with the show, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think the book that you wrote, um, Next Coast Ventures, and a bunch of other stuff that we're going to talk about today is really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that. Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. I grew up in the wonderful Toledo, Ohio area. Sarcasm nice. okay. intended, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you went to university. What did you take and why? I went to, well, first of all, I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. So when I, I remember walking onto the campus at Miami University in Ohio, not the one in Florida, and just being overwhelmed. <laughs> there were yeah. people with, it was a long time ago, but there were these people wearing shirts with little horses on it, which I didn't know what that was. And it turns out it was Ralph Lauren. And just, it was just a totally different environment than the kind of uh, gritty or inner city world I'd been growing up in. Uh, but I went to Miami of Ohio. I tried to play basketball there. I tried to walk on and play basketball. That didn't work out. I figured I'd better get educated. And fortunately, I had a family friend who recommended accounting of all things. Um, largely because his, his advice was, it's the language of business. You'll get a job, um, and you know it'll take you. It'll be a good foundation for whatever career you choose in business. Uh, so that's what I did, and it was right. 
Interesting. So how did you decide to be the first person in your family to actually go to university? Because you, you basically broke that cycle for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it, it's a totally different topic on just the environment I grew up in. Fortunately, I, I was raised by a single mom. Um, I was the youngest of three. She was, was kind of her impetus, if you will, to break the mold and really challenge me to go get educated. For me at the time growing up, I just wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of the environment I was in. I didn't really have a path to do that. But, um, you know, knowing that the current direction that I saw everyone around me on was not attractive, um, combined with luckily, you know, a single, a mom's intuition, if you will, to say, you've got some intellect, you got some capabilities, don't waste it. And I think that was probably the driving force more than anything else. Um, and I just had to figure out how to pay for it, which was a, a totally different uh, question. Interesting. So how did you fund your education and then walk us through, um, you know, obviously getting out into the workforce and then getting your MBA? Yeah, well, so I was, uh, so my, my mom was able to help with some of it. And luckily I went to state school, so it wasn't that expensive back. This was, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth kind of thing. Um, and then I worked three jobs during college. I was a, uh, I worked as a, at the recreation center. I was there as a scheduler. I worked as a umpire for softball games. Uh, and then I sold beer. There's there a local football team about an hour away in Cincinnati, Ohio called Cincinnati Bengals. And every Sunday I would, uh, I talk about it in my book, I would sneak out of my fraternity house. I'd drive down, I'd put on a blue polyester suit and uh, I'd walk the stadium steps yelling cold beer here. Um, so I, I actually did that uh, throughout my entire college career in order to uh, basically afford it. So. Yeah, it's fun. Um, definitely learned about the value of hard work. From there, I went to work um, at Ernst & Young in Chicago as a CPA. It was one of those jobs I walked in on the first day and said, oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, but I did that for two years. Then I got recruited to go work on Wall Street. Um, I had to watch the movie Pretty Woman to try and get some idea what that job was. I, I worked for Lehman Brothers when there was a Lehman Brothers for two years. Um, and then I applied to a bunch of Applied to law schools, luckily didn't get into any, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and that, that falls into like, thank goodness for unanswered prayers. Um, I think I wanted to be a sports agent and that didn't work out. Uh, and then luckily I finally applied to business school and, and Northwestern was uh, kind enough to, uh, to take me on as a student. Interesting. So walk us through the rest of your career up until basically what you're doing now with Next Coast. And then I want to dive into the book. Yeah, yeah. So um, then uh, after after business school, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't have any great ideas. So I, um, I made a pledge myself at the time that I would be running something within five years of graduation, which is kind of a, in retrospect, a really bold and crazy idea. I went out to Silicon Valley in the late 90s. I just wanted to be out there. I knew, uh, I didn't know technology, but I knew it was just kind of an amazing vibe that was happening in the late 90s. So I went out there. Um, I went back to investment banking because they paid for my business school. And I thought it would be a good way just to get networked in. Um, I worked for Lehman for a little bit and then went to work for Morgan Stanley. This is the height of the dot-com bubble. Uh, and then by serendipity, this guy named Mark Andreessen um, was starting a new company. He and his uh, guy named Ben Horowitz had just sold Netscape, the first browser, to AOL. And they were starting a new company. I went out to breakfast with Mark. 
Uh, and he said, how about come and work for us? And I said, sounds like a pretty cool idea. So I went and worked for Mark and Ben, um, now of legendary venture fame injuries and Horowitz. Um, but I went and worked for them for two years. That's awesome. And saw, saw something from literally a PowerPoint presentation through initial public offering. Also saw Ben and Mark operate in uh, kind of a boom to bust through the dot-com cycle. And then I quit. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I raised a small pool of capital to go look for a company to buy because I didn't have a great idea. Uh, I used a vehicle called the search fund. I bought a business called service source. And then I ran it for the next 13 years. Um, took it from a small business all the way to uh, 3000 employees around the world, publicly traded, uh, so oversaw the IPO in 2011. And then by 2014, I was, uh, I was at the end of my runway. So I moved to chairman, moved my family to Austin, Texas and uh, co-founded next Coast ventures. Interesting. Very, very cool. So what made you actually decide to become an investor and, and what types of investments and investment themes does next coast ventures actually invest in? Yeah. So the, the decision I, I thought long and hard because I was still reasonably young. I thought about going back to operating, but as I talk about in the book, um, one of my real, I had a lot of weaknesses as an entrepreneur, but one of them was my inability to find balance. I just was never a kind of a, you know, balance was not something that I, I was really good at. So um, I knew that about myself. I had four younger children at the time and I just didn't want to go back um, to the grind of operations, if you will. Uh, I also saw an opportunity to bring some of my experience. Um, and this was a shared value with my co-founder at Next Coast. We looked at it and said, we've both been entrepreneurs. How can we help? Um, and money is kind of the easiest part of the entrepreneurial community right now. But can we bring some real world experience, some know-how, and, and can we help the next generation of entrepreneurs? And that was the real motivating factor uh, in terms of my own decision to become an investor and also our desire to start Next Coast Ventures. Um, we've got about $300 million of assets under management. We wow. invest, your second question, we invest in Typical Series A and Series B that's gotten a little bit um, muddied, but we're looking for innovation companies in software and internet technologies. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, we invest about two thirds of our capital goes into Austin, Texas, where we live because there's so much good stuff going on. Sure. We also invest in other uh, similar next coast markets in the United States. Very cool. Uh, yeah, and I, I think Austin's a very fun city. I've been there a couple of times, so I, I totally get it. And there's tons of really cool stuff being built there. So no, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, before we dive a little bit deeper into the investment side, I want to talk about the book because I think they they tie hand in hand so well because they're complementary. So what made you actually decide to write a book and what's the book called and about? Yeah, I think yeah, like most things in life, um, if I knew how hard it was, I would probably wouldn't have done it. But um, my 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 motive set was my decision was I, it was a bucket list thing. Um, but more importantly, I, I became kind of annoyed in that when I started really investing and helping entrepreneurs, I saw advice for entrepreneurs falling into two buckets. On okay. the one bucket, there's the you know how to write a business plan or or legal documentation, which is really critical. Sure. And and then the other bucket is. Uh, what I used to call entrepreneur porn. I got to come up with a better name, but it, it's all that <laughs> stuff that, you know, it's kind of like when you, when you binge out and eat a bag of Doritos and you kind of don't feel good about yourself. And it's that kind of stuff that's, that tells you, Hey, Kevin, you know, here's the seven things that Mark Zuckerberg does before five in the morning. 
Um, you know, if you're starting a business and you're trying to get going, it doesn't really matter what Mark Zuckerberg had for breakfast before 5 a.m., right? It just totally. doesn't help you. Um, and what I, and more importantly, what I saw was a big gap was around the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. So helping entrepreneurs, current or future, understand the mental challenges of it was a right. gap that I saw. And it's something that I was and, and am very passionate about. So I wrote the book called Mr. Monkey and Me, A Real Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs. That's the name of the book. Very cool. I, I think that the book cover is, is really interesting. How did you come up with the idea for it? And uh, maybe talk about the rationale behind the cover? Well, this is a really interesting story. So what, what I tried to do in, in the story, just a little bit, because it supports the cover is, um, and for the, like the cover is a, a guy sitting on a, a bag with a monkey arm who's flipping the guy off and the guy's supposed to be me. <laughs> um, that's actually the, the PG version of the book. And I'll tell you a quick story if you have time. But sure. basically, what, the monkey is the star of the book. And the monkey is the voice inside all of our heads that tries to sabotage us. It's the monkey voice that said, you know, Kevin's a great interviewer, but Mike, no one's going to give a hoot what you say, right? It's just, you know, for me, it shows up as fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And in the book, the monkey is, you know, my constant enemy, if you will. Um, so I was actually, my 12-year-old son, who's quite artistic, came up with an idea. He came up with the original idea for the cover, which was the monkey was supersized. And he was <laughs> two double two double hands flipping um me off and then there was a little shadow down in the bottom um that cover we were scheduled to release the fall of 2020 okay and if you think about some of the political charge that was happening and still continues but you know and, and some of the good activists have changed there was a belief that it may get swept up into some sort of cancel uh culture gotcha. um so it got reworked and, and probably for the better. Like I, I don't, it was never meant to have any, it was just kind of like that this monkey is a strong force. Yeah. Um, and so my son went back to the drawing board and, and reimagined it in a cool way. Oh, very cool. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into what you guys actually do and the deals that you guys invest in. Because what, what I thought was different about what you guys do at Next Coast is you you kind of have these like theme buckets. Do you want to talk about that and how you came up with that idea? Yeah, it's it's we we the themes are how we start everything we do. Um, right now, one of the exciting things and daunting things about being a venture capitalist is innovation is happening everywhere. And that's the exciting part. So it's great. There's not a corner of the global economy that isn't being re rewritten right now by amazing entrepreneurs. So innovation's everywhere. The challenge with that from an investor is trying to figure out where you can actually have an expertise or understanding what's happening. And also for us, a relatively smaller firm compared to some of the folks on the coast, how we can actually add value to the entrepreneurial community. So we started with, our answer was to come up with themes. And these are right now, we just published them uh, actually yesterday here in um, October of 2021. We republished our latest version. So twice a year, we get together as a firm. We get a bunch of experts to come in and we talk about areas where we think innovation is that there's still a lot of innovation to happen. Interesting. And, and that we believe that we as a firm could have uh, ability to help entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, so, um, and, and, you know, unfortunately we were back and we started the firm in 2015, 16, 
some of our key themes were future of work, think pre-COVID, uh, digital health, think pre-COVID, um, and reimagining retail. Those three themes, which we just believed, it, we thought they'd take 10 years. Uh, candidly, COVID, among other things, accelerated them by, by almost a decade. So it's been, you know, not, dis not t discounting the, all the pain and suffering of the pandemic, but some of these themes have just gotten accelerated and, um, and we think those changes are here to stay. Sure. No, that, that makes total sense. So I'm curious then, what do you look for when you're doing investments and, and then maybe pull some examples from the book into that, if, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting job because I can, I can tell you our exciting themes and, and we are excited about them. We think they're, they're really significant. From there, we can then we throw them out in the world and we try and get both inbound and, in, and outbound ideas. We reach out to entrepreneurs or, or they come to us. At the end of the day, you know, all the themes and then the business idea, 90% of our decision or maybe more goes into the entrepreneur. And what we, we use this term at Nexico is called glass eaters. Not a, not a very fun theme, thing to think about, but really does the entrepreneur, does she have the passion and energy to get through all the ups and downs that entrepreneurship endures. And that really, it, that's a perfect parallel to the book because I wrote about it, which is you can have the greatest idea in the world. I mean, think of every day you see uh, Starbucks versus every other coffee chain idea. Um, go into you know Uber, Lyft or whatever the examples are. Airbnb wasn't the only B2B sharing for couch surfing, if you will, back in the day. But for some reason, one, one company emerges. And our general belief is it comes down to the mental aspect that the entrepreneur possesses. And so when we see the entrepreneur and we understand she has a great idea at a big market, but most partly she is going to do everything she can within legal and ethical boundaries to build an amazing business, that's where we get really excited and go, yep, that's that's what we're looking for. No, no, I, I think that's that's really great. How do you figure that out or or what advice or what do you, what things do you look for in a person because that's got to be really hard to figure out yeah it's it, you know it is it isn't it isn't i think in a in a first meeting it was one of the things hard in covid because it was it's harder to do over zoom i think um there's right. a lot of things about our job that are it's great like we can do this over zoom it's awesome or or teams whatever it is um i do think it's multiple occurrences we have certain areas we like to push them on where it really comes down to is can the person does it can the person be talked out of the idea it's kind of interesting like okay uh, do they do they believe there's something special when a human can't imagine the world without their idea coming to fruition interesting and that is kind of the first aspect it's like wow they can't be talked out of it but then, you know, secondarily, though, tied to that is you look at it and say, can he or she actually build a team? Because it's one thing to be passionate about the idea. It's like, can this person, because entrepreneurship is not a solo game, if you want to scale. Um, so can he or she hire people? Well, are the people that are going to want to come work for her? And then the last attribute of that, which all tied together is, do you think they'll take advice? So you kind of want, at one end of the spectrum, they won't be talked out of their idea. But the other end of the spectrum is, but they'll listen. They'll, they'll take feedback. They'll learn from others who have done it before. And again, when you, that's the kind of, as you 
you know, you kind of do this Rubik's cube, if you will, and you spend more time when all those things start to come together, that's you go, okay, there's, we have a class leader here. And, and candidly, in, in most of those cases, we would back that entrepreneur almost independent of the idea. Interesting. No. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. So you put all these, well, you call it like a real survival guide for entrepreneurs. How did you decide and maybe give us some examples of other things that you put in the book? And then how did you learn about those things to decide to put them actually in the book? Yeah, great question. You know, it was interesting to be clear. My joke about this, and it's kind of true, is like, you know, I had a, I had a great entrepreneurial career, but it's not in the Hall of Fame or anything close to it. I'm like a, a B or maybe a C actor in Hollywood. So what I did to supplement that is I went back. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, no, listen, I mean, it's this isn't, you know, it's not Phil Knight telling you how he built Nike over. Like, you want to read a great book? Read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Yeah, I'll tell you how he took book. 30 years to build Nike. That's a pretty good book. Um, <laughs> pretty good story. Um, but, but what I did was I looked back and, and I was very fortunate among many things in my career to have great mentors. So I went back and said, okay, what did I learn from Ben and Mark at, at, when they were starting LoudCloud? I looked at my own journey. And then I looked across, which is a much broader sample set, and said, Nexcos has invested in 60 different companies and entrepreneurs. What attributes do they see? And then the last part of research I did is I went and talked to probably eight to 12 amazing entrepreneurs that I'm fortunate to know and asked them, hey, what are the mental attributes that you would attribute your success to? And what was fascinating about that, Kevin, is, you know, you start with that scattergram. It, it came down to a pretty tight pattern. And that's what in the book, there's this thing called the shape formula, which is the, you know, the, this, the five attributes that I believe you need to have to develop this mental toughness. But that wasn't, and a lot of them I never acquired or, or tried to acquire, but those are the things that became consistently returned to me from that research. And that's what drove the formula. And what I try and do in the book is provide at the end of each chapter, provide three or four very specific tactics to acquire those attributes. Okay. So what are, what is that shape formula for people that don't know? Yeah, it's uh, so simple acronym. It's not exactly uh, built to top each other, but it's kind of is. I mean, it's, it could be. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like the first one is S is for self awareness. Okay. H is for help. A is for authenticity. P is for persistence, and E is for expectations. And they kind of they kind of feed. I mean, you, you know, to have self awareness, which is really understanding your strengths and weaknesses, that then allows you to get help. Where, where, where do you need to acquire direct or indirect help and assistance? I think the more you do that, that allows for authenticity. As you become more authentic, authentic, you can have a persistent mindset. And then E is the one where it's just trying to have a proper mindset for each step in your journey on entrepreneurship. Interesting. So I'm curious, you talked a lot about you learned from mentors and, and other people in the past. Is there anything that you learned outside of your your work life, maybe in your personal life or, you know, through art or, or music or something else that you brought back into your actual entrepreneur and or investor life? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting whether it's, you know, direct or indirect. One of the things, um, one of my favorite books, uh, well, I've got to read all the time, but one of my favorite comments from one of my favorite books was, um, Steve Martin's book about his career as a stand-up comedy. 
And, and one of the things that he talks about in that book is his early mantra was when something like this, like be so good that they can't ignore you. And now is my, I've got four kids and three of them are now teenagers. We talk about this, which is about in every field of human endeavor, there's someone that has spent the time and energy to become a master and the master tends to get a disproportionate amount of the rewards. And I, I don't, as a father, I'm not, it's not really economic rewards, but if you think about, to your point, if you think about the best artist, the best musician, or the best guitarist, whatever it is, yeah. someone who's willing to take a passion, put the time and energy into it, and become an expert, um, the lion's share of whatever awards are out there, acclaim or economic awards, go to that person. There is, you know, who the best basketball player in the NBA is, you know, who the best football player is. You also, you know, who's the best author. And it's, I don't, at best, I hate that word because it, it sometimes connotes competition, but I think it's more around mastery. And so I'm, I'm kind of in awe of mastery and how it, someone could be, you know, there's probably, I don't know, there might be a thousand golfers that could play in the PGA. I don't know how many yeah. that is, but there's a lot, but you know, five or 10 consistently win. Right. Now, when I talk to people in sports, I mean, I played high school basketball, so what it's worth, but like when I talk to people in sports, they're like, oh yeah, the number 200 best golfer in the country or in the world and the five, number five or four, they hit the ball all the same. It's not like mm -hmm. one's dramatically better. It's just that one person has developed, you know, an extra gear, if you will, that allows for that success. So I'm just, I'm more than obsessed, a little obsessed about that. Interesting. So I, I'm guessing then, and correct me if I'm wrong, you think anybody could be a great entrepreneur if they put in the time and effort? Is that what you're basically saying? I think if they put in the time and effort, yes, with one like massive asterisk, okay. which says bad ideas are still bad ideas. Um, Fair enough. And, and so, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is you know, being passionate about something is, is table stakes, but, but listen, there's a lot of great, like there's great entrepreneurs that run wonderful restaurants in the city of Austin where I live. Right. They run a great restaurant. That's all they want to do. And they're happy. That's awesome, man. That is like life success. Totally. If you want, if you want to run a big business, that's where the idea has to have some level of scale. And it has to be like the customer, has, you have to do something that in this world, especially, I think you have to do something where the customer has a wow experience. I think the more you focus on the wow experience and how you're going to change someone's you know, life or experience, it's usually a pretty good inkling that you might have a big idea. Interesting. So at what point then do you guys invest in a company? I know you said kind of a, a series A, kind of series B. And, and maybe a little gray area in there, but, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like depending on where you are in America, series A is at a different point in a startup's career. So what does that mean for you guys at next coast? Yeah. Great, great question. And and it's all getting convoluted now at best. The, the way I would do it is, you know, perhaps a, a different way to think about it, Kevin is stages of, of business creation. Okay. Um, there's ideation, which is you and I getting together and 
coming, building a PowerPoint or a business plan and saying, Hey, we think this is a pretty interesting idea. Then there's from ideation, you go into like starting to prove out whether or not it actually works. That's usually around this term we use in venture called product market fit, which is a sophisticated way to say, does someone want to buy what you're selling? Um, right. And then from there, you know, you start thinking about scale and then, you know, hyper growth or whatever we're playing in technology, usually past ideation, meaning someone's got the PowerPoint and usually when you start to get some level of customer traction, okay, uh, you, you've, you've created the proverbial lemonade stand and you've shown that every day a bunch of people can buy and buy it, or some people buy it and you're trying to figure out how you can scale that lemonade stand or piece of software to the next level. That's usually where we play largely because we've all been operators and entrepreneurs at next coast. And so we like to roll up our sleeves and help um, the super early. I've got an idea on a PowerPoint that's usually left to what's called seed investors. Um, ten, it's a really interesting part of the market. Just not exactly where we find the best place for us to invest. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So is there like a certain formula you kind of touched on something a bit that somebody wants to actually pitch to you guys that they kind of need to follow or is it a little bit more like you said a lot based on a person in a vertical that you guys kind of invest in um it's you know it's it's both here's what i'd okay. say um you know if you came in to pitch um i want to understand the market you're playing in i want to understand the how innovative your solution is uh, I want to understand what your customers think of, of your business. I want to understand the financial profile at high level, how you're going to make money. And then I, then I want to understand the competitive landscape. And I think way too often entrepreneurs pitch us, just leave that out. And by the way, when I've written a blog about this, one of the biggest competitors that's often left out is called inertia, right? We're all busy. Uh -huh. We're all, you know, we're all super stressed out and busy. And so inertia tends to be a pretty big competitor. Um, so that's kind of like the business attributes, but equally important. I think this is often under, understood, like we're looking just as closely at those, looking for those attributes I mentioned earlier. Right. No, so, that makes sense. Yeah. Good I point. mean, it's, yeah. What I'm, I'm advice to entrepreneurs is understand the firm, understand what type of investments they make, the stage, what else have they done? Because, you know, you don't want to waste your time. If you came in and talked to me about, um, you know, a, a huge capital raise, a hundred million dollar capital raise for some electric vehicle. Um, this is not us. Right. Lots of great investors out there. Or if you came in and you had a great um, new can of water, like consumer goods, we don't do consumer goods like in that, right. like non internet based businesses. So I think the, the key is like understanding what the investment firm looks for from a business metrics, but then also understanding that you know, we're, we're looking just as closely at uh, the personal attributes I discussed earlier. Sure. So you talk about mistakes and stuff that you made as an entrepreneur. What mistakes do you pass on to people? Well, I guess, what advice do you give to people to, to make sure they don't make the same mistakes you did as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's a pretty long list um, <laughs> of mistakes I made, but but also it's like one of the things that I, I think that I um, probably one of the earliest mistakes I made was not getting enough help, and, okay. and kind of believing that um, believing that as a CEO founder that I was supposed to have like this persona, like 
talked about in the book. Like my, my monkey voice was saying, you know, do not ask for help. Always, you should always know the answers, which is complete BS, but that's what my voice is telling me. And I tell this story in the book about this. I had this lucky encounter with this amazing, um, a guy named Bill Campbell. There's a book okay. written about him called Trillion Dollar Coach. Bill Campbell was former CEO of Intuit, but then became in the Valley, the coach to Steve Jobs, the founders of Google, the founders of Twitter, right? Yeah. So I, I went down and had a beer with Bill one time at this bar called The Old Pro in, uh, in Palo Alto. And I walk in and Bill, his graspy voice, he used to be a football coach at Columbia, then he went to be a CEO. And so amazing career. And I walk in, Sparkle, you look like shit. Thanks, Bill. Good to see you. you know? <laughs> but 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 I, I sit down and I, I was having trouble. I'd, I'd had to fire like my fourth head of sales in four years. And I knew that if I didn't get it right, I was probably going to be on the chopping block. And I explained that to Bill. And Bill says, like, who's your coach? So I don't have a Bill. I don't have time for a coach, Bill. Like I just told you, I'm, you know, I'm working 20 hours a day. I can't find a head of sales. And, you know, he, he, you know, in, in an eloquent way, he said, Steve Jobs has a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. Why the blank doesn't Mike Smirklow have a coach? Um, and it was just kind of like an eye-opening thing. Like, okay, well, that's right. Like, if I wanted to be better at golf or better at uh, tennis, I would go get a coach. But oftentimes, we see founders that feel like that's a sign of weakness. So that's probably one of the easiest ones for me to say to an entrepreneur is, go, go get a coach. It doesn't have to be like someone you pay, but find mentors that have done what you've, you're trying to do. Um, and then there's a whole host of other ones, but that's probably the biggest one. I think the other thing that I try and do um, remind our founders all the time is that self-care really matters. Um, this is the proverbial marathon, not a sprint. I hate that colloquialism, but I can't think of a better one. Sure. And so trying to make sure that um, I, I don't like to get emails from my founders on, on Sunday, right? Or Saturday. Okay. You know, I, I, just, I think there's, a, there's way too much in this culture about you know, work a hundred hours a week and, you know, sleep at your desk. I did that. The problem is it doesn't last. You burn out, you know, it causes family issues. So I'm a big believer as evidenced by the book in mental health. Right. So I'm therefore trying to pass it along to our founders as well. So on the mental health side, what do you recommend to other entrepreneurs that are maybe struggling with that because you've obviously been on both sides of that where it was really bad. You seem to have it under control now. How do you make that mental shift and actually start taking care of yourself? Well, I mean, the good news is we're talking about it, right? And I think that's one of, um, it's not just me, obviously my book is one of many voices on it, right. but I think what's most exciting about entrepreneurship and mental health is, candidly, it was a topic that, that's why one of the reasons I wrote the book, as I said earlier, but when I was an entrepreneur, no one was sitting there saying, hey, are you are you meditating? Are you watching your diet? Are you getting exercise? It just was not a topic. And so first of all, I think the talking about it is, is helpful. But then secondarily, there has been some really good progress around, like just think about meditation. Yeah. You know, there's apps now that'll help you do that. Diet and exercise. Um, understanding balance, Th those things are, are I'm, I'm super excited that they're moving more and more into the workforce, Sure. not just um, for founders, but more and more in the workforce to people understand that you know, this stuff does really, really matter. And so I think that's the probably the best first step that's happening. No, that makes a lot of sense. So for entrepreneurs, it can be maybe scary to talk about their competitors or maybe even try to build some sort of relationship with their competitors, whether maybe one will acquire the other one or 
Maybe they can send customers or share customers. Why do you think that's important? Well, let me understand the question, question, Kevin, in terms of why is it important to think about competitors or have a corn? I, maybe well, I didn't understand the question. Maybe a bit of both, I guess. Like, why is it important to maybe like, because when I'm pitching, if I'm pitching yeah, to you yeah, or yeah. Next Coast, like, obviously you're going to ask me who my competitors are, but that can also be kind of a scary thing to think about, right? And it could validate my idea. It could make me not do something. And then I've yeah, also yeah, heard where people actually become maybe like even friends sometimes with their competitors because sometimes it's like look you're not a good fit for our product but you know what like one of our maybe not direct competitors is is a good fit like what are your thoughts around that well on the first part i, I think in terms of talking about your competitors um i don't know a business um maybe you know in the last i don't know about history but i can't think of a business that doesn't have well, let's step back. There is so much capital flowing around right now for entrepreneurs. It's a great time to be an entrepreneur from that regard. It is a really good time to be raising money for your business if that's the path you want to go down. As a result of that, just about every subcategory of subcategory has multiple players that have been funded. I'm talking more in the venture landscape versus the, the bootstrap, yeah. but I don't think it's much different. And so to walk in and not openly acknowledge and talk about the customer is in my opinion tends to be a sign of of ignorance um not, not to be personally scathing but just you know i if you go start that lemonade stand i was just referring to there's a bunch of competitors they may not be direct competitors they may be substitutes sure i do a lot of podcasts and fortune in this book and i say all the time like if, if you said who's your competitors well you know i'm a business to business well, well joe rogan the substitute like i can choose yeah. to listen to building the future or i can choose to listen to joe rogan very different topic but you're still competing for the the ear you know the eardrums if you will yeah. so i think there's that part i think in terms of understanding your competitive landscape i'm all for understanding it developing relationships i don't know if i would go into like i also think you can get distracted by competitors um so i i'm kind of like acknowledge them understand what they're doing but being, you know, going too far to the other end of the spectrum, which is, I, I was never really friendly with my competitors. I just, no, I kind of want, I kind of wanted, like it motivated me. So it was like, I want to go kick their butts. And so much like, you know, like a football game or a basketball game, I may say hi to them, but I wanted to, oddly enough, probably anonymize them. So I, so I could be more, you know, focused on beating them interesting no that that makes total sense so i'm curious what advice do you give to people that are hesitant to actually go for it and what i mean i don't mean necessarily like quit their job and and just like go all in if they can't do that or maybe they can do that but what do you what advice do you actually give to people to get over that like mental hurdle of actually deciding to start you know working on that path to your startup or your company or your dreams or whatever that is? Well, two things. I mean, one, I think there's something about expectations. It's one of the letters in the acumen. It's just like understanding that it starts with the first step. Your idea, you know, all the big businesses that we love to talk about all started with a simple idea. You know, Starbucks was not that there should be one in every corner. It was to replicate the experience of being in Italy at a small cafe. So every business idea, Facebook was started so Mark Zuckerberg could beat girls at Harvard. Like 
<laughs> you know, first yeah. of all, it's like, A, it's going to be hard and B, every um, idea uh, has to, you know, it starts small. Like these things aren't, aren't on purpose big from day one. But when it comes to motivation, and I also argue that entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. I think the world needs more of it, needs more diversity, but listen, it doesn't mean, it's not a bad idea if you don't want to be an entrepreneur. But if you're mm -hmm. thinking about it and you're on the edge, I just go back to like, and you want to live your life in a cube. You want to live your life living someone else's dream. And if you do, that's great. But if you feel that err in your belly, that itch, like, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a philosophical guy. Like when you wake up in the end, in the end of your life, I do believe like the Jeff Bezos talks about the regret minimization. Like, are you going to sit back when you're 60 or 70 and go, damn it, I, I don't know why I didn't try it. I think if you have any of that inkling on it, then then just challenge yourself to be like, what's the worst case scenario? It's kind of like going up and, you know, you see an attractive potential mate at a dance. Worst case scenario, they say no, right? Yeah, or no better bar, off, right? Yeah. No better off. Like they say no and so what? But I just, I feel like there's some of that that says, with the right mental attributes, with the right resources and the right mindset. Hell, I don't know. I'd rather I'd rather have tried and lost than not tried at all, I guess is why I put it. No, I 100% agree with you. I, I'm curious because you've been on obviously the entrepreneurial side and the investment side, how did you get through some of the lows when you were an entrepreneur? And what advice do you give to people to help them get through those lows because you've been there and you've done that? Well, the, the, the real answer on the lows is probably like alcohol and, and, you know, and, and <laughs> sure. uh, you know, and, and senseless TV or something like that. I wouldn't recommend that. That's what I did. So this is a classic example of like the book talks about things I did wrong. Um, you know, in all seriousness, I, I think that there's some things now that I'm very fortunate about. I've got a great support infrastructure. Um, I've got family, I've got friends, I've got my faith, I've got dogs. Like, I mean, there's things you can do to make this um, less daunting. I think the other thing you can do is there's ways to take yourself physically and mentally. You know, are you doing some sort of spiritual or meditative practice? Are you getting some exercise? Like, are you doing things to make sure you don't get out of balance, which I, as I mentioned earlier, I struggled with. And then last but not least, and I think probably what I don't know if I would have done this differently, but you know, realizing it's we're not at life and death. Fortunately, I mean, there's some people that are you know, like there's certain things about uh, this world that are life and death. Starting a new software business is not life or death, and so I think perspective really helps. At the end of the day, fight your fight, do your best, do all those great things. But you know, when you get in your car to drive home to see your family at whatever time o'clock at night, it, it you know you don't have to treat it like it's the end of the world. And that perspective is, um, you know, is a hard one to do when you're an entrepreneur, when you're in the thick of it. No, that, I think that's really good advice. So the proceeds of the book go to charity. Why did you choose to do that? Because I, I think that's actually really cool of you. Well, um, I guess, you know, the cause, the, the book was never meant to be a profit motivator. It really was to try and help with entrepreneurs. Secondly, I've been, I've been beyond blessed in my life. And so I didn't feel this is something that I need to do to make money for myself. But third, and, and by far the most important thing is I'm just passionate about the need for entrepreneurs in this world. I, I sure. believe the world needs more entrepreneurs. I think we need more diversity entrepreneurship and we need more entrepreneurs that once they achieve some level of success, stay healthy. So all the proceeds go to a scholarship 
that my wife and I set up for diverse and underrepresented to students interested in entrepreneurship. Very cool. Um, that's where it goes to, but it just, listen, I mean, I, I think the biggest problems in this world, I was out in the Bay area a couple of days ago and one of my friends was talking about, we're talking about wildfires Yeah. and he's, he's investing in companies that are focused on prevention, mitigation of wildfires, all these different things, like Very cool. all for-profit plays. But my point is oh. left to the government, left to, you know, agencies, it'll take 30 years. Hopefully right. entrepreneurs will be able to save it and, you know, help stop those, the really bad wildfires in the West in this decade. It's sure. just that type of belief that I have about entrepreneurship that, that really drove me to do it. No, that's very cool. So is there, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice you would want to give entrepreneurs that you maybe see all the time that you maybe wish they wouldn't do or that they would do more of that we haven't talked about yet? Well, um, yeah, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground. I, I guess I would just say is, um, you know, the whole book was trying to bring forward this this voice inside your head. Everyone has a voice. I guess that's my one piece of advice on first. Like, you're not alone. If you think, if you have fear, uncertainty, doubt, lethargic, whatever it is, some reason that's preventing you from doing what you really want to do. My biggest belief is that everyone has that voice. The difference is how you react to that voice. So. That's the one thing I'd emphasize is you're not alone in terms of the voice telling you not to do it. The key is to think about some of the stuff that's in the book, but how do you overcome that voice? And, you know, if you're really passionate about it, give it a try. Like, again, this like life is short. You get one time, one chance to do this. If you have something that's really, you can't sleep at night in a good way you want to go do, I would just encourage everyone listening with the right parameters um, to go for it. It's, it's really, um, you know, that's my biggest push. Sure. So do you think people should be all in, have a plan B, do it kind of maybe in the evenings or weekends, or does it really depend on that individual's situation? I think, uh, let me answer the question differently. I think if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, you should take into consideration your situation. There is a time and place okay. for everything. If you're, you know, if you're uh, financially strapped and you're really challenged and you've got young kids at home or whatever the situation is, be thoughtful about that. There is a good time and a bad. I, I think there's also a bad. There's there's bad examples. Like sometimes it's not the right time. So um, I think waiting can make sense and getting and getting relevant experience. I talk to a lot of people right out of university. I say, you know what, I love your passion about entrepreneurship, but you may want to go get some skills. Maybe not, but but it's not a bad advice. So I think that's the general backdrop. Okay. But then I'm not a plan B person. I never okay. have been. Don't think I ever will be. It, if you're going to do this, it's going to be tough. It's going to be gut-wrenching, but it's going to be the best job you've ever had. Having a plan B in my mind, you, you might as well not go because you're already thinking about what if it doesn't work. I think the truly successful entrepreneurs don't have a plan B. Interesting. Well, and you, you know, and have met and worked with a ton of them, right? So it's, it's pretty good advice. Yeah. It's like, it's like, Hey, you're going to go run a marathon. You're like, yeah, but if at mile 12, I get tired, I can always drop out. Guess what? Mile 12, you're probably going to drop out. Right. Yeah, so you've already, you've already told yourself that. And so again, with all the parameters I mentioned before, um, I just think, listen, if you want to do something amazing, um, back to that mastery comment, you got to go all in. And I think the world will, will reward you. No, I, I think that's really good advice. 
But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Next Coast Ventures, the book, and any other links you want to mention? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, so Next Coast Ventures is just that spelled out, um, nextcoastventures.com. We're in Austin, Texas. All of our themes are mentioned on our web. I mentioned are on our website. You can learn more about us. Um, and if you have a great idea, please send it along. Um, for me personally, the book, Mr. Monkey Me, is available on Amazon. Um, if people do get interested, reminder, as you said earlier, all proceeds go to charity. So reviews or social mentions favorable are going to help uh, that scholarship. I also, under my own name, Mike Smirklo, S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. That's my Twitter handle, my Facebook handle. And then um, under that web domain, I publish uh, thoughts about entrepreneur journey. There's a short quiz there um, about mental readiness to be an entrepreneur, a bunch of cool resources there, uh, all under mikesmerklow.com. Perfect, Mike. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time under your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Always uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Okay, bye. So guys, I thought that was a really interesting interview. I think we covered a lot of really interesting advice, especially for the entrepreneur. What did you guys think? Yeah, I thought it was a really great interview. Really interesting. Um, I think Mike had a lot of great insights and a lot of great advice that the uh, that a lot the our listeners can take a lot of a lot away from. And I'm gonna say too, if he's a guy that I would want to hang out with, it sounds like too, which is a lot of times totally. you, you have this idea of the successful entrepreneur investor type that they're this super type a irritating person he seems so genuine and totally. uh you know when he when he kind of you know classified himself as a you know a c actor or whatever i love that that cracked me up um yeah just a genuine guy too which i think makes what he says uh a lot more i take it to heart a lot more i thought um i thought his his comments about looking for glass eaters. I thought that was really interesting and what you have to go through in order to, to be an entrepreneur and just to, to make it through the, all the, the grind that you're, you're put through. Yeah, totally. No, I think that's, that was great. I guess we'd lose the question of, do we want to eat glass? I don't want to eat glass. No plan B. No plan B. No plan B. But we don't have plan Bs. We do eat glass. That's the trouble. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> with ourselves. This is great. Yeah. Great cool. episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app, or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with Two L's at www.learner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.